This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the mission of the United States Air Force is to fly, fight, and win. Air power, anytime, anywhere. The Combined Air Force and Space Force proposed budget for fiscal 23 is $194 billion, a significant boost in spending to invest in modernization, to confront China and an array of national security threats worldwide. I'll talk to the top-ranking civilian in the Air Force, Secretary Frank Kendall. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The budget request for the Department of the Air Force, which includes the Space Force, provides for a 12% increase over last year's request. To talk about his priorities and initiatives is the Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall. Mr. Secretary, welcome. Thank you, Mimi. Good to be with you. You've outlined seven operational imperatives mm -hmm. for the department. The first one is defining resilient and effective space order of battle and architectures. Explain that, and is that your top priority? It's very high on the list, certainly. Uh, this is a process that started actually in the Obama administration. We recognized that we couldn't operate with impunity in space anymore, that the threats to our space uh, systems had gotten fairly significant, and that we had the change to think of space as a warfighting domain a place where our, our, our systems could be attacked and a, a place from which our adversaries could also do things in space that threatened our forces on, on the surface of the earth. So we started down the path of uh, transforming really space to something that was more of a warfighting capability. And that process isn't over. We started it, I think we're well into it now. And uh, a lot of work was done in the previous administration. Jay Raymond, who set up the Space Force, I think has moved in the right direction generally, but we still have a lot of work to do there. And everything else depends upon our capabilities in space. The Joint Force can't operate successfully without the services we provide from space, and it can't operate successfully if, if the Joint Force is targeted by adversary systems in space. Let's talk about acquisition. Mm -hmm. uh, you were the top acquisition guy for the Defense Department uh, as Undersecretary. So first I want to ask you your thoughts on how acquisition should be handled between a service, where you are now, and at the department-wide level, where you used to be in your previous role? I think it's basically the same. Best practices are best practices wherever you're sitting. Uh, acquisition is new product development, basically. That's what we focus on. It's where we tend to have problems with cost and schedule overruns more than anywhere else. A lot of it about uh, getting the requirements right, which is generally a service's responsibility and then laying out the programs, right? Programs are generally, are, are entirely actually managed within services. The role of OSD, of the Secretary of Defense's office, is more about a check and balance on ensuring that those programs are set up for success. So the Secretary of Defense is the Undersecretary for Acquisition now, uh, looks at programs at certain intervals when major commitments are going to be made. Now, a lot of that authority was delegated to the services in the previous administration. Uh, which I'm, I have no problem with, frankly, at this point. Uh, but we need to make sure our programs are sound, whether they're being looked at by OSD or by the services. So what did you learn? I mean, how are you leveraging what you learned as um, USD ATNL and now as secretary? Well, I've got a, you know, several decades now of experience in some facets of acquisition, defense acquisition. 
Um, and the, the basics are, are what matter. We've, we've tried a number of different, I'll call them fads, but ideas about how to do acquisition differently. They're really about rearranging deck chairs. Uh, it's really is the ship soundly designed and is it, is it structured to actually get where it's got a good crew? Uh, things like that that really matter at the end of the day. So we tend to focus, I think, my experience on the wrong things. It's about the substance of what we're doing. Uh, that's what sets you up for success or failure. You know, about 10 years ago, as, um, as an Undersecretary of Defense, you launched something called Better Buying Power 2.0. Mm -hmm. And the, the purpose of that was to ensure affordability and increase productivity and defense spending. Has it achieved those goals? I think we made a lot of progress. I mean, this is history now, but uh, there were three versions of Better Buying Power. If I'd stayed in office, there would probably been a fourth. They were all designed to identify and put in place best practices for acquisition from the business perspective, from the point of view of assessing technology and getting it into the pipeline and moving it efficiently through the pipeline. The, uh, I put in place a number of things which I think have merit. Um, I think I was able to train a lot of people over the seven years that I was doing acquisition. Uh, a lot of those best practices were abandoned after I left. And, and so hey, I'm, I'm reinstituting some of them, quite frankly, in the Air Force and Space Force. Like what? And, um, First one is to ensure that the programs are structured to deliver meaningful military capability as soon as possible. Uh, a lot of programs were structured in the last few years to provide early stage prototypes within a certain period of time, but not to actually deliver real capability. So we're, I'm looking at a number of those programs. Uh, Andrew Hunter, who's come in as my, is coming in as my acquisition executive, will be looking at those programs to make sure they're really structured to get uh, capability in the hands of operators. How are you ensuring the, that the Air Force's systems that you acquire will integrate across the Joint Force? One area we're doing that in particular is in space. Uh, the Space Force uh, has responsibility for joint requirements for space. And the Vice Chief of Space Operations, D.T. Thompson, is working with the other services to integrate their requirements and to make sure that uh, the requirements for our future space architecture that we talked about earlier reflect what all the services in the Joint Force need. So we're, we're, we're organized to do that. That's a very key responsibility. It's a very important services function that the Space Force provides to the entire Joint Force. In other areas, uh, we're trying to do intelligent trade-offs. Uh, I'm very focused on modernization. I'm very motivated by the threat of China, our facing challenge in particular, and what they're doing to modernize and what we need to do to modernize our forces to ensure we can project power successfully. And is that what's really driving the fiscal 23 budget request? Is it that pacing challenge and the modernization? It's one of the major drivers. Certainly China is the major driver. Uh, obviously Russia is an acute threat also, but China is the pacing challenge. China has the resources and the intent to, to build forces that can defeat American power projection capability. Uh, and they're the only country in the world that does that. Uh, and they've been at this for a long time. They started right after the first Gulf War, so they've had about 30 years to, to work on ways to defeat the United States' ability to project power. So that, that is what's motivating me more than anything else. But what we've tried to do in the 23 budget is provide a balance between the capabilities we need now to deal with the threats that exist today and the transformation we need to have to get to the forces we're going to need in the future. So I think we've got that about right in 23. I think we're off to a good start. What I'm also telling people, though, is that they need to be prepared for hard choices in 24. A lot of the work under the seven imperatives that you mentioned is about identifying where we need to go. 
uh, beyond where we've already uh, what we've already started. And all of those things, I think, are going to produce a need for programs that we're going to be funding more fully in, in 24. So I anticipate there'll be some hard choices in 24 at any conceivable budget level that we might end up at. All right, quick break here, and then we'll come back and continue. Coming next, we'll continue the conversation with Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall. Mr. Secretary, you, you said hard choices mm -hmm. in 2024. What are they? I think the basic choices are about uh, things that we need today and things we're going to need in the future. And when I look at the, the, the global situation, it's pretty clear to me that risks and threats are increasing over time. So we need to be very mindful of that. There, there's always tension within the Pentagon between the needs of combatant commanders who want forces now and they want forward presence now to deter the threats that, that they see and, if necessary, you know, succeed militarily against them. Uh, so there's a lot of demand on the Air Force. We're one of the more flexible forces. We can shift resources pretty quickly. Uh, we, can, we can demonstrate power projection capabilities very quickly by being on scene. Uh, and so there's a constant demand for that. There's a demand for a lot of the services that we provide, like mobility and, and intelligence collection, so on, surveillance. Um, <clears throat> and you're seeing this, of course, play out with the Ukraine right now, with uh, air forces being deployed for it, as well as other elements of the force. So there's a demand for that. Uh, there's a demand for high levels of readiness at the same time. These are current demands. But we also have to modernize. Uh, a lot of the elements of our force are quite old. The average age of our aircraft is 30 years right now. 30 I, years. I was going to ask you and that. I don't think anybody out there is driving a 30-year-old car right now. Well, some Not of them many, are some even older. Are. <laughs> yes, you're right. Some are twice that age. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, we, we, we have that tension between near-term needs and longer-term needs. Well, let me ask you about that. I mean, what are you doing to... to update the fleet? I mean, you've got some B-52s that are from the 1950s and 60s, and they're flying. Uh, B-52 is a remarkable program, and we're re-engineering it. We're putting a new radar in it. We're going to extend its life for some time. I, I refer to it as one of the more over-designed aircraft uh, in, in the world, just because it's been able to last much longer than its design life was intended to. But that's a good thing, uh, at least in this case. The, there are uh, a number of other programs, like F-35. Uh, we're upgrading F-22 in some ways. So we're trying to improve those. We're trying to keep some of our larger four-structure F-16s viable, uh, some of them anyway, as long as possible, because they're a relatively inexpensive platform to operate. We're trying to introduce the B-21, which will replace some of our older bombers, uh, not the B-52, but others. So there are a number of things that are going on to try to give us, get us to a better mix. The issue we've, we've had some concern with is a reluctance to retire some of our current aircraft in order to afford the newer ones that we're going to try to purchase. Uh, Congress was very helpful last year. They gave us almost everything we asked for. We're asking for some additional retirements this year, relatively modest ones, uh, by comparison at least. And hopefully we'll have support for that as well. But that's, it's necessary to make that transformation. It's necessary to let go of some of the older things that have been very good platforms and served us well, but which are not going to be relevant or capable against the threats that we worry about for the future. Let me ask you about hypersonic weapons. Do you mm -hmm. see it as a modernization priority? And what's the status now of the Air Force's programs? We are uh, proceeding to modernize through hypersonics in part. Uh, there's been, a, I think, a perception that because the Chinese have been aggressive about hypersonics, we have to be the same. 
I think we have to look at our own military needs and think about them uh, independently of what the Chinese are. I understand the Chinese targets that they're interested in and why they want hypersonics for those targets. We don't have the same target set to worry about. So we need to think about what's most cost effective for the United States. And there is definitely a role for hypersonics in that mix. But I don't think it's as dominant a role as it might be for others. So we, we have other weapon systems that are much less expensive. Hypersonics have some unique features. They get there fast. Uh, they're very hard to intercept. But they're also very expensive. So we have to do those trade-offs. Uh, the programs that we have ongoing, Arrow, uh, one of them has had trouble in, in development. It's had some flight test failures. So we want to make sure that, that those problems are corrected before we make a final decision on that. Uh, and we have some other things that, that are more in the technology phase that are moving forward as well. You know, Russia has claimed to have used hypersonics in Ukraine. China has tested, successfully tested hypersonics. Is the U.S. behind our adversaries in the development and deployment of these weapons? Yes, but again, you have to come back to what do we need versus what do we, they need. We have some much more sophisticated weapons than the Chinese do in some other areas. Uh, uh, ER, which we're trying to buy as maximum rate in the, uh, in the budget, for example, is one of those weapons. So am I hearing you say that you're not fully committed to moving forward with hypersonics? We're moving forward with hypersonics, but I don't want to overstate the importance of hypersonics as part of the U.S. inventory. Hypersonics by themselves are, are, are useful weapons, but there are a lot of weapons that have special purposes uh, that you buy in relatively small quantities. I think hypersonics fall more into that category. Going back to the budget, you know, in the inflation rate is at nearly 8% at this point. Mm -hmm. Have your gains in this year's budget request pretty much been wiped out by inflation? No, not entirely. There, there, there is some inflation covered in our request. Uh, that, uh, you know, there are always uncertainty about how much inflation will be and how it will impact us. But we would look pretty carefully at things like fuel costs, for example. Pay raise is going to be higher this year, 4.6%. Uh, and I think that takes into account, to some degree, the uh, implications of inflation. And we can make adjustments over the year if, if things change. All right. We'll take another quick break, and then we'll come back. Coming up, we'll wrap up the discussion with the Secretary of the Air Force. We'll be right back. We're back with Frank Kendall. He's the Secretary of the Air Force. Mr. Secretary, I want to talk specifically about the R&D budget. Mm -hmm. um, it's nearly $50 billion. Mm -hmm. What's the plan for, for that funding? That's the biggest increase in our budget. It's about 20% relative to the previous request. Um, it, it, it reflects our emphasis on modernization. And you have programs in there like the Next Generation Air Dominance Platform that are increasing in funding. Uh, we're starting some additional work on unmanned combat aircraft, uncrewed combat aircraft. Uh, the next generation, uh, now the Sentinel, the, the new ICBM, is in there and its funding is increasing. So a number of things like that. Uh, but again, it, it reflects an overall uh, trend towards higher investments in modernization. Tell us a little bit more about that. It's the next generation air dominance fighters, mm -hmm. NGAD. What capabilities will it bring? Where are you timeline-wise? Uh, maybe it's a classified program and there's kind of limited month I can say about it. But it's intended to be the F-22 replacement, effectively. Uh, NGAD comes out of a program that I started uh, a couple of years before I left the acquisition job. And it was designed to demonstrate the next generation of TAC air technologies in an X-plane type of uh, program. 
that program was successful, and it's led to uh, initiating a program to go to the next generation. Uh, under the uh, imperatives that we mentioned, the operational imperatives, one of them is the next generation air dominance family of systems. So NGAD will include uncrewed combat aircraft, it will include uh, communications, sensors, a mix of weapons, and outside support operating together as a formation as opposed to just an aircraft. So it's a much broader concept now than it originally was uh, envisioned to be, I think. What about innovation? How are you supporting better, faster innovation? Uh, the, the key thing for us in innovation, I think, is to get the requirements right, I'm sorry, to get the decisions right about what we're going to buy, get the requirements right. Okay, so a lot of the work under the seven imperatives is about that. You know, we need to, we, rather than just making intuitive judgments and jumping into a bunch of things, we need to think carefully about what's really going to be most cost effective for us. But how do you make that determination? How do you know what's going to have the most impact on the battle? That's exactly what the seven imperatives are about. Each one of them is an analysis and a cost effective analysis, a study, if you will, and in some cases, technology investments. Uh, to, to determine what the best path going forward is. And there's been a lot of emphasis the last few years on going fast. I'm not opposed to that, but I want to go in the right direction. So step one is to make sure you're going in the right direction, and then you can go fast. So we're, we're sorting some of those things out. And if you walk through the list, whether it's space order battle we talked about earlier, or getting the air, uh, advanced battle management system right, or getting the NGAD family of systems right, uh, they're all about making sure we're going in the right direction. And once we have that, that's then we start to spend the money to, to actually get there and you, move as quickly as possible. You, you mentioned the Air Force's ABMS. This is the Advanced Battle Management System. Mm -hmm. How does it fit into the broader JADC2 architecture? Uh, it, it, it was the original component of JADC2 in terms of it being announced as a program. Um, it is the Air Force and the Space Force piece of JADC2, uh, our contribution to that. Uh, my general concern there has been that the idea of JADC squared is sound, but it has not been defined well enough in terms of what you actually have to do to field it and to make it effective. And I'm trying to make sure that we're focused on the things that have the highest payoff there. As I've gotten to understand the Air Force's uh, posture with regard to command control, communications, and battle management, it's clear to me that we need a modernization uh, of that suite of capabilities in any event, independent of just the applications of artificial intelligence and better decision making. Uh, to, 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 uh, to battle management. So we've got a lot of work to do there to define what that next generation looks like and to organize ourselves to go get that. So that's where ABMS fits in. And talking to and interacting with the other services as part of JADC squared is very much a requirement for the system. The U.S. Space Force is still relatively new. Mm -hmm. What's been your biggest challenge with that? I think the Space Force has been set up for success. I think Jay Raymond and his team have done a really fine job of getting the organization put together, establishing a separate entity and a separate culture to some degree. What I'm emphasizing for the Space Force right now is that they embrace their role as a provider of services to the Joint Force and as a protector of the Joint Force. Uh, they have to provide services that are critically dependent to all, uh, for our critical dependencies for all the other services. And they also have to deny our, our adversaries the support that they would like to get from space to target our forces. So they, we, we've got to finish the job of defining what those things are, but we're off to a good start there. I'm sure you've been watching the Ukrainian conflict mm -hmm. uh, closely. What lessons are you drawing um, from that for the Department of the Air Force? Uh, I'm not learning much from the conflict itself that is influencing our decisions. We're seeing 
a number of miscalculations by President Putin. Uh, we're seeing his military being much less capable than I think he expected it to be. I think a lot of people expected it to be. Um, you're seeing a united NATO, which is not something he expected either. And that's really, you know, the strength of integrated deterrence is about the strength of our alliances and the strategic partnerships we have around the world. And we're seeing the value of those play out right in front of us with NATO. We're also seeing the potential for great power aggression by a dictatorial author authoritarian state, which I think a lot of people had dismissed as a, you know, an artifact of history. It's not. And so that can happen in, uh, it can happen in Europe, it can happen in Asia. So I think it's a wake-up call for everybody about the seriousness of the, of the potential problems we face. But not really a change in strategy or priorities for the Air Force. Now we'll be learning and analyzing it going forward very carefully. The inability of the Russian military to take control of the air is a very interesting feature here. And the effectiveness of the Ukrainian air defenses, uh, I think in particular, is something we can learn from. Um, the, uh, uh, the failure of the, of the Russians to uh, operate as an integrated force effectively is something. So there are more lessons in the sense of things that weren't done well on that side and some things that were done well by the Ukrainians that we're paying attention to. All right, Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for making the time for us. Nice to talk to you. My pleasure, Mimi. Good to talk to you, too. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us a comment on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. 
we use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.